Senate Bill 539 is our ethics legislative package. This legislation takes the first steps in addressing some of the most egregious scandals in our state's history. The fact that this bill didn't go as far as many of us would have liked to see, that means that we, uh, the public and, and groups like ours, really have to stay on task and keep the pressure on lawmakers and make sure that they don't forget about this issue. They don't forget that one of the most important things to do in Illinois is to address corruption and restore trust. Welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Joel Ebert. I'll be your host this week. For months, Illinois' top elected officials, including Governor J.B. Pritzker, House Speaker Chris Welch, and Senate President Don Harmon, have said ethics reform was one of lawmakers' top priorities for this year's legislative session. Yet, for the better part of five months, little significant action was taken on the issue, at least until May 31st, the last scheduled day of session. That's when Representative Kelly Burke and Senator Ann Gillespie introduced an omnibus 113-page ethics bill that made a host of changes aimed at helping lawmakers regain Illinoisans' trust. The ethics bill's late arrival comes amidst an ongoing federal investigation that has resulted in the indictment of current and former lawmakers, ComEd, the state's largest utility company, entering a deferred prosecution agreement, and the downfall of former House Speaker Mike Madigan, who's the longest-serving leader of a state or federal legislative body in U.S. history. Given that backdrop, good government groups spent months pushing lawmakers to finally address the state's long-standing ethics issues. This week on the Cloudcast, you'll hear from Elisa Kaplan, Executive Director of Reform for Illinois, about the latest ethics bill, which now heads to the governor for action. Despite the new proposal, good government groups and even the sponsors of the ethics reform package said more needs to be done on the issue. Here's a smattering of officials who have said as much. On ethics, there are new guardrails to stop abuses like the revolving door and lobbying while working for government. It isn't perfect, and more work definitely remains, but there are more ways now to putting a stop to corruption than there ever have been before. We are not done at all. Mark my words, we have much more work to do. The focus of this uh, bill, the primary focus was to do the uh, core things that would address the scandals we've seen over the last few years. This isn't the, our work isn't done. This isn't the last bill we will do. I'm going to vote for this because we've got some tiny pieces of very small steps in the right direction, but the public in this body should demand much better than this. I'm going to vote for this. I don't like it, but it's, it's, it's one step in the right direction. I've committed to continuing these talks over the summer to develop a trailer bill as necessary. In order, that was Governor J.B. Pritzker, Senator Jill Tracy, Senator Ann Gillespie, Representative Avery Bourne, Representative Tim Butler, and Representative Kelly Burke. For more on this topic, here's my interview with Elisa Kaplan. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Joel. So I wanted to rehash for some of the folks that hadn't paid close enough attention to this omnibus ethics reform bill that was essentially dropped and uh, approved on the same exact day, uh, May 31st. It included a host of provisions to sort of make uh, the ethical reforms that lawmakers had long been promising, or at least some of them, right? 
Uh, it had everything from giving the legislative inspector general some additional independence, broadening the state's definition of lobbying, and placing limits on how lawmakers can raise money. For listeners who aren't familiar, can you give just a broad overview of some of the major and even minor components included in the bill? Sure, especially on some of the things that we've been focusing on. So we have, for the very first time here, a revolving door provision uh, on the state legislature. So most other states have uh, revolving door provisions that mean that a legislator can't become a lobbyist for a certain period of time after they leave the legislature. So what we have in this new bill is a six-month revolving door period. So legislators would have to uh, wait six months um, before becoming lobbyists after they leave office, uh, with some exceptions that I we can get into in a bit. Um, the bill also bans what we call cross-lobbying, which is legislators who want to lobby local units of government. Um, there's a loophole there that we can discuss later, but this is the first time that we've seen that kind of measure in, um, in Illinois. And as you mentioned, it also gives the legislative inspector general who's tasked with being sort of a, a watchdog over uh, ethics issues in the le- uh, in the legislature. Uh, it allows her to open her own investigations without asking lawmakers for position for permission to do that, where previously she would have to ask um, the Legislative Ethics Commission, which is made up of lawmakers, for permission to open her investigations. Um, there's some changes to the types of information that uh, officials have to report on their economic disclosure form. So what kind of conflicts they might have because of jobs they have or sources of outside income that they have and that might potentially in the future conflict with their official duties. Um, there's more disclosure of lobbying consultants. Those are a few of the big things that are in the bill. So you already alluded to it. Let's dive into a little bit more on this uh, six-month lobbying ban, right? Uh, So how does that compare uh, to other states? And what are some of the sort of limitations of that? Uh, We heard on the House floor, uh, Representative Avery Bourne point out that you, uh, the way the bill is written essentially, would allow somebody to resign as one General Assembly is coming to a close. So let's say January one and then immediately uh, start lobbying the the next General Assembly, which is sworn in, you know, in early January as well, which sort of subverts that six month lobbying ban. So so explain um, some of the the issues with that six months and and how does it uh, compare to other states? So to start, um, most other states, the vast majority of other states have significantly longer cooling off periods than Illinois just, than the Illinois legislature just passed. So we see about 36 states. um, So, you know, a significant portion that have at least one year cooling off period before legislators can lobby their colleagues. And in about a dozen states, they have two years or more, um, which is considered best practice because it allows for more turnover in the legislature, in the legislature before, again, uh, former legislators can go back and lobby their colleagues and have that special access. So the longest um, 
revolving door prohibition is going to be in Florida shortly, and that's a full six years. So there you had voters in Florida took matters into their own hands and decided we really don't want former legislators lobbying our legislature. And so they have full six years. So we are really at the bottom of the barrel with this six month provision. There's only one other state uh, that has such a short provision among the states that have any provision. So um, that's an area where we would really like to see some some improvement. We were disappointed in uh, that six month period. And the problems, as you point out, are first of all, um, you know, the the legislature session ends in at the end of May. And so it's not not much more than six months before the the next the next uh, session would start again the next year that the legislature would reconvene. And as you mentioned also, um, there's a provision in the bill that says that you only have to wait the six months if you're lobbying the same general assembly. So that would be basically if you resign, you know, if you leave during one general assembly, uh, you have to wait six months to lobby the same general assembly. But if you leave on the last day of session, uh, you can start lobbying uh, your colleagues on the next day of session. And so this is a really, really weak provision that puts us at the not in good company with other states. And we would really hope to be strengthened in future sessions. And, and what's the problem here, right? It, it, why, why does it matter how long lawmakers or ex-lawmakers should have to go before their former colleagues? Why is that a significant issue for, for folks like yourself? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, one of the major reasons is you want to prevent what what's sometimes called auditioning by legislators. So you want to prevent either the appearance or the reality of lawmakers actually paying more attention to a potential lobbying employer than they are to the public's interest and to their constituents. So we had, for example, a case where uh, then Senator Pam Althoff um, supported some legislation that was favorable to enterprise rent-a-car. And then uh, shortly there, just a few months later, she went to work for enterprise. Um, and so you have a situation there, whether, whether her intentions were totally honorable or not, and they might have been, um, the public is left wondering whether she was really acting in their best interest or acting because she, you know, expected she, she wanted to act favorably to this potential employer of hers. So you want to you want to um, do whatever you can to break the possibility of that conflict and, and that influence um, of a legislator looking towards a, a future lobbying employer. The other reason is because ex-legislators who lobby their their colleagues really have a special advantage because of those special relationships that they make. And because of that, there are a lot of deep pocketed special interests that will pay top dollar for that, for that advantage. And that really becomes uh, an equity issue and an issue of um, who has that special access to lawmakers. And, you know, often it's the case that it's the, the people and the interests who can really afford those, um, those ex-legislators who have a direct line of access to, to their colleagues, to current lawmakers, while the public and public interest groups just may not have that, that type of access. So again, 
um, it's it's an issue of making sure that the public's interest stays foremost in the minds of legislators and that it's it's always constituents who come first and not special interests. I thought one of the more intriguing moments of the discussions in the, the committee process that was eventually what led to this this legislation uh, was when I, I remember you were asked at one point, well, well you know, the cooling off period or the, the, the revolving door should apply for bad stuff, right? For bad uh, uh, and evil almost, uh, uh, you know, uh, organizations and groups that are trying to influence people. But if somebody wants to, you know, uh, let's say, be a lobbyist for, for you know, pro puppies out there, why should they have to be uh, uh, go through a cooling off period? Your answer was basically, it doesn't matter what your interests are, right? It should be for uh, the same amount of time, no matter what the cause or the organization you're representing. That's correct, because it's easy for you or I to sit here and say, well, puppies are the most important thing in the world and and they should be allowed to have every advantage. But for every issue, there's there's another issue on the other side. Right. And so what's important is that nobody has that kind of special advantage to the extent possible that that, again, there you minimize that special access because, you know, um, in the case of I think the case that was given in that hearing, um, that well, we might have like an anti-gun group uh, and what would be wrong with a former legislator jumping into lobby for an anti-gun group? Well, of course, there's many people in the state that support gun rights. And so it's really about the level of influence and special access that's important and that we're concerned with and that nobody gets that special advantage more than trying to say which cause is good, which cause is is bad, which, you know, which we want to give those advantages to. Another issue I wanted to talk about was uh, the aspect related to fundraising. So as it's written, uh, the legislation would limit lawmakers ability to fundraise on days. And this is throughout the state, not just Sangamon County on days they are in session and the day before. Uh, While the passive uh, viewer may say that sounds like a great thing. Uh, there are easily some issues that have been raised about it. One on the House floor was Representative Tim Butler, who said, uh, essentially, there's there's sort of a workaround, right? If if you're in a local elected official, i.e. a mayor who is also a state lawmaker, you could raise money as that mayoral candidate or the mayor, um, but then later transfer the money to your legislative account. Uh, Another issue, of course, is that while you may not be able to hold fundraisers, that does not prohibit you from accepting any contributions on days in session. What are your views on that component of the bill? I think those criticisms are absolutely correct. I appreciate that there was a little bit of tightening up of those fundraising provisions in in this bill, but I think there's a lot of work to do to prevent the the types of... um, potential conflicts that could arise when you are collecting campaign contributions. Campaign contributions are, are problematic whenever they happen. That's that's a, one reason that our organization focuses a lot on the role of money in politics. But especially when, uh, when the legislature is in session, the danger of the, the appearance or the reality of a quid pro quo, of a legislative quid pro quo, quo um, really suggests that we should make those those measures as tight as possible because we just don't want people thinking that legislators are making legislative decisions for the wrong reasons. 
one of the biggest changes that were discussed throughout these, uh, you know, months of hearing and discussion was about giving the legislative inspector, inspector general, uh, a little bit more teeth. Um, what what happened in this latest bill, and um, is it adequate? Do you, would you like to see more in the future? This is an issue that I've been working on, um, and my organization has been working on since 2017. It's an issue that's been raised repeatedly by every legislative inspector general that's existed, essentially. Um, the legislative inspector general is supposed to be an independent oversight mechanism um, over legislators. So uh, that office is supposed to investigate ethics violations uh, and complaints into lawmakers. And this, I, I'm sure your audience will understand how important that is to have that independent oversight. And right now that that office is just not independent. Um, she, the current inspector general, her name is Carol Pope. She doesn't have the ability to um, until this bill, we'll see, it, you know, until this bill is signed, she won't have the ability to open investigations on her own without asking uh, the lawmakers who comprise the Legislative Ethics Commission um, for permission to do so. She has to ask legislators for permission to subpoena documents to, uh, or compel witnesses to appear. And very importantly, she has to ask their permission to publish reports where she finds wrongdoing. This issue really came to a head when former Inspector General Julie Porter um, testified last year in very passionate testimony before the Joint Ethics Commission and the legislature that she had tried to ask to publish a report um, finding what she called serious wrongdoing into a sitting legislator, by a sitting legislator, sorry, and um, and that the legislators on the Legislative Ethics Commission wouldn't let her publish that report. And we still don't know what's in that report. And we think that's wrong. The public deserves to know when um, there's been an investigation that finds that one of our public officials has, um, that there's a good possibility that one of our public officials has committed um, some serious ethics violation. And so we really would like to see um, more independence in that office and also more independence um, in the Legislative Ethics Commission, which has a role in um, in uh, adjudicating these, these cases. Uh, right now it's made up of totally of legislators. So that means well, there's one now ex-legislator on the commission. So that means you you have basically the fox guarding the hen house. You have legislators judging other legislators. You have them um, judging their friends and colleagues and, you know, uh, with the ability to dictate in part the investigations into their friends and colleagues. And that's just a really tough situation. That's not what independent oversight is. Independent oversight means you have a body that's separate from the body that's that's being overseen. And that's not what we have right now. In this bill, um, it does allow the inspector general now to open investigations on her own. And that is a positive step that we've been pushing for for a long time. The problem is, is that it really just doesn't go far enough. It doesn't uh, allow her to publish reports. It doesn't allow her to subpoena documents or witnesses. And it doesn't put any members of the public on that ethics commission, which is something that we had really advocated in the past. So we have a long way to go before we have truly independent oversight of the legislature. This was a, a tiny little baby step, an important one, but a tiny little baby step.
you've talked about um, or your organization since this bill has passed has said that the proposal in general, quote, falls short in key areas. We've talked about a few, um, but what other key areas do you think that the ethics uh, overhaul falls short in? In addition to all of the the things that we've mentioned, we would like to see the ban on cross-lobbying tightened up. Um, Right now, uh, there's a loophole where legislators cannot lobby other localities if the lobbying entity or employer that's, that's, that's employing them is also registered to lobby the state general assembly. And so that leaves open a loophole where, you know, you could see um, a legislator going to work for a lobbying entity that say registered to lobby Chicago, but not necessarily Springfield. And that would be just fine. And, and we see that as opening up the kind of problems that legislator lobbyists present that we saw, say, in the Luis Arroyo case. Um, we'd also like to see um, some more progress on the economic disclosure forms. There were some changes made, uh, including some positive changes in this bill, but we still just will not get the information that we need out of those forms for the public to really understand what kind of conflicts are presented by our officials outside jobs or outside sources of income. And so you have a situation now where you could, um, somebody could make say uh, $7,600 consulting for ComEd, for example, and they would have to put that down on their report. Um, They could also make $300,000 consulting for ComEd. And those would be very different types of conflicts. They could present different types of problems for a legislator, but they would look exactly the same on the current forms. So there's a lot more information and there's good lessons to be learned from how other states manage that. Um, So those are a few of the things. Uh, There could be better regulation of conflicts of interest and recusal of legislators in in matters in which they they might have a conflict. Um, There's a, a list of other things that that remain to be done. We'd also like to see more work done on campaign finance um, because we believe that's an area that is an ethics area. It's, it is an ethical issue and it needs to be addressed, um, but that's just not something that was in the spotlight this particular year. I was going to say that wasn't even included in this bill. In fact, in, in the elections bill, that, that had more to do with campaign finance, but in changing some of the allowable things or um, even one provision was about, uh, I believe, eliminating audits for small committees, right? Um, but what are some of those those campaign finance things that, you know, as lawmakers start to work on sort of the trailer bill or round two of this uh, ethics reform uh, legislation, what would you like to see on the campaign finance end? Well, we would love to see, for example, um, limits on transfers between from party committees. We saw that uh, legislative leaders in particular have been using a combination of what we call the self-funding loophole, which lifts contribution limits under certain circumstances, and the lack of limits on, on party committee transfers um, to essentially funnel money from big donors into uh, the candidate committees of candidates that they support or that are that are loyal to them. And that has been an important problem that, that helps consolidate power into the hands of just those few party insiders and legislative leaders. It was something that um, Michael Madigan used to, to really um, 
ensure that the people that were loyal to him and um, and uh, would receive funds that um, that they could use to win their races or that he could use to um, shore up primary opponents for people who who wouldn't necessarily support his his aims. So um, we'd like to see things like that. There's a lot of work to be done on dark money. There's work to be done um, to address some of the problems that the self-funding loophole raises. There's there's a ton of work to be done in campaign finance reform. And again, it was excluded from ethics this year, but we think it's a it's an ethics issue. It's a core ethics issue that will have to be addressed soon. Throughout the year, you and other advocates testified in committees, and you have in the past uh, talked about various ethics proposals, some of which were included in this, but not all. What role did your organization and other good government groups have in drafting the bill? It seemed, um, one might say, minimal because the way that it was just rolled out after weeks of you know discussion, but no um, no hard work in committee that that said this is it. Uh, what, so what role did you play in, in, in the formation of this, aside from sort of appearing in those committees? I think, as you said, we we have been advocating for these reforms for several years now, some of them. And, um, you know, I think our work in the commissions last year, before committees in previous years, our discussions with legislators, all of those played a role in in the ultimate product here, um, whether we were in the drafting room or not. Certainly this process was not what we would have liked to see. It was not the transparent process that we would have expected or hoped for for an ethics bill. And certainly there are areas where we would have liked to be more involved. But I think that, you know, the reform groups and, and members of the public who did get involved in this um, definitely had a role in influencing um, and influencing some of the provisions here, and hopefully we'll have a role in making them stronger in the future. In some bills, right, let's say the energy bill, there are stakeholders at the table. People on all sides of the issue are there working on this legislation, at least from what we've heard. That was not the case with this ethics bill. No, that's correct. I think this was a much more closed process than any of us would have liked to see. Um, and and I think you know that was a mistake. It's it's not what um, it's not again what you would like to see from an ethics bill. Um, I think it it probably led to a, a substandard product. Um, and I would hope that future in the future it would not be like that, and it would be a more open process with stakeholders involved more closely involved in the drafting process. So be, both before and after this uh, omnibus ethics bill was introduced, you had the, the bill's supporters, including Representative Kelly Burke, Senator Ann Gillespie, and Senator John Kern, uh, all say that more work is needed in the coming months or in the future at some point. Even the governor said that uh, in his post-legislative um, session press conference. How optimistic are you that lawmakers will follow up this bill with an update given how long it's taken to get to this point. I hope we can take them at their word and that they will work hard to to address some of these issues, close some of these loopholes and you know give us a, a stronger revolving door provision and really take to heart the fact that Illinois right now and and for years now has had the lowest 
level of trust in state government in the entire union. Um, and that that is a crisis that needs to be addressed. And we've waited a long time for this type of reform. Um, it has been the the narrow breadth of this particular bill and in, in some respects has been disappointing given how long everybody has waited. I think uh, many people could look at history and the way reform has gone here in the past and say, you know, there's always a lot of big promises and then uh, the legislature will do something cosmetic and say, look, we're done. That was it. You know, we've done ethics reform. Um, we've tackled corruption and that's that's the end of that. Attention kind of fades away and and they hope that, you know, the issue will sort of resolve itself. And we really hope that that's not the case this time. We would like to be shown that legislators are really serious about tackling these issues and um, restoring trust, taking those steps that they need to restore trust with the people of Illinois. And, and one of the things that typically happen in, in most states is when there are corruption scandals, there is a legislative reaction, right, to implement new laws and new rules and new, um, you know, uh, checks and balances on themselves to then say, you know what, we, we not only um, need to do better to police ourselves, but also we need to build back that trust. This one's kind of different because you've still got the uncertainty of a massive federal corruption scandal that is still going, right? So while this legislation comes in the middle of that, and after several indictments of, of current or former lawmakers, there could be even, you know, um, more unusual things, um, more things that come out that will eventually lead to uh, the need for additional legislation, I would imagine. Yes, that's true. I think it's far from clear that the federal investigation is over. Uh, there's more indictments coming all the time. It's like a, a drip, drip, drip that Illinoisans have endured for several years now. And obviously, um, <laughs> these this recent spate of indictments is not the first time Illinoisans have seen corruption in their state. Um, so it's it's definitely possible that something could come out and refocus the spotlight on ethics reform. We hope it doesn't have to come to that and that legislators will will recognize that it's important to address these problems before they reemerge or not just when there is a big scandal. Um, I, I think that also, though, given the number of scandals that we've had just in the past couple of years, the fact that this bill didn't go as far as many of us would have liked to see or as far as you might think, given all of the attention that was on corruption and ethics right now, that means that we, uh, the public and, and groups like ours, really have to stay on task and keep the pressure on lawmakers. Constituents have to keep the pressure on lawmakers and make sure that they don't forget about this issue. They don't forget that one of the most important things to do in Illinois is to address corruption and restore trust and that they get back to work and um, deliver us a fantastic ethics bill soon. Elisa Kaplan, Executive Director of Reform for Illinois. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of the Cloudcast. Thanks to Elisa Kaplan for coming on. This week's episode has been produced and edited by me, Joel Ebert. 
We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.